morning, Bethel Church. Great to uh, have another Sunday to celebrate uh, our good God and the good things that He has done and uh, to celebrate His great rescue of mankind. And we are telling a story this uh, month of December. It is not just any story, it is the story. It is the story that refutes all the false narratives that cloud our thinking. We hear all week, all the time, false teaching, false doctrine, false stories. The story that we are telling is the story of God and the story that God has written. And it is the story that trumps all other narratives, the true one. And last week, we got into Genesis chapter 1 with the very first chapter of this great story, which is the story of creation. And we saw in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And just that one statement refutes so many false narratives that are out there, uh, like the fact that there is a God, which of course... Uh, the secular humanist and the natural evolutionist and others deny that there is anything supernatural. There is nothing beyond us. And yet, the Bible begins with the story of a supernatural being, God himself, who decides to create reality, something that was not God. Prior to this, all there was was God. Now, all of a sudden, there's a whole nother realm, a whole nother existence, and it is the universe, and it is time, and he creates in this universe all the atomic and molecular galactic components that make up the universe as we know it, a universe that was built upon incredible diversity and yet unity, utter dependence upon this God. It was not God. Remember that if you go to see Star Wars this week. The pantheists are not right, and Star Wars doctrine is not right. There is a God, but this reality is separate from Him. He is much more than a force. He is a personal God. And we see in Scripture that God made this whole universe as a kind of reflection, affirming not only his existence, but what he is like. Like, you, like what you can learn from the moon, or I'm sorry, learn from the moon about the sun, right? By looking at the moon, you learn a lot about the sun. It's not the sun itself, but it reflects what the sun is like. And all of creation is a giant moon to the sun of the character of God. It tells us what he is like. And we saw last week that the pinnacle of all of this creation is when God decided to make human beings unique in creation in the image of God. He makes us ideally suited for a relationship with Him. We were made by God, we were made for God. So we look into our own hearts, look in the mirror, and what do we see? We are right down to our DNA relational, we are moral, we are spiritual. Everywhere you go in the world, people are asking questions that the dog and the cat don't ask. Who am I? Why am I here? Why, where does meaning come from? What is my destiny? What happens to me when I die? These and many other core sort of religious, philosophical, image-bearing questions are in our hearts, maybe brought you here this morning. That's because God made us in his image. We are perfectly suited to a relationship with a God who is moral, spiritual, and relational. That is not a mistake. 
We are engineered perfectly for relationship with God. And God made Adam and Eve and placed them into a garden of perfection, the Garden of Eden. And we don't know how long they were there, but we do know how wonderful it was while they were there. Everything in perfect harmony. This is somewhat hard for us to imagine. Everything in perfect harmony. Adam and Eve in perfect harmony with creation. There, all of their needs being met, all harmony. It's, it was like uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia, you know, it was just a beautiful place of coexistence and co-harmony. Harmony with one another. The only perfect marriage that has ever existed was Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. Perfect harmony between human beings. And most importantly, perfect harmony with God. Every day, it seems, they kind of went on a walk together. There was a relationship there. They enjoyed one another. So, we ended last week in a real place of perfection, of harmony, the kind of place that you're like, man, I'd love to go there sometime. Can I book a flight and go on vacation to the Garden of Eden? It would be wonderful. It was humanity as it was supposed to be. But then something happened. Then something happened. Something devastating, which is the subject of our whole teaching this weekend, which is often called the fall. And we pick up this story in Genesis chapter 3 and uh, verse 1. Our text primarily will be Genesis 3 today. Here is what, how the story goes, chapter 2, the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. All right, we'll pause there for a second. It's only been a couple weeks since we were in our Peter series and we studied Satan. And I'm hoping that kind of helps us right now as we draw from what we learned about Satan. If you remember the story of Satan, Satan is a created being, an angel. He was made by God, the most beautiful, the most powerful being in all of the universe, except God himself was this angel named Lucifer. He was beautiful. He had command over the the, uh, angelic world. Only God had more glory than Lucifer. But that stirred in the heart of Lucifer a sinful heart and desire, and he cast a jealous eye towards the glory of God and the standing of God. And in his heart, he wanted what God had and led a rebellion against God. And there were maybe a th- one passage would suggest a third of the, demo- of the angelic world went with Satan in this rebellion against God. Well, God judges Satan and casts him down. Now, we would wish maybe he sent him to the Andromeda galaxy or something like that, but guess where God decided to send him? Right here to this world that we live in, right here to earth. Satan and all the demons are cast in judgment to this, to this earth. And... Uh, Genesis picks up the story now after the fall of Satan, where he says that Satan was, he doesn't actually call him Satan here, he calls him the serpent, the serpent. Now, does that mean that he was actually a snake? If we go back in the story, was it actually a snake that came uh, slithering up to Eve? Or is it a description of the character of Satan? We're not exactly sure, but here's what we do know. 
If you want to pick an animal that's a, a description or a picture of something that is scary and sneaky, I think a snake's a good one, don't you? All right? And all the snake haters said, amen, right? Amen. Doesn't matter, really, because what does matter is this is Satan himself speaking to Eve, talking to Eve, and notice what he says. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, he is referring back here to the commands that God gave to Adam and Eve regarding what was available to them in the garden. And... uh, Satan actually misquotes God very subtly, but we see that he is, he's trying now to set Eve up. Verse 3, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we read this, knowing about what's to happen, most of us probably, and we see what Satan is doing. This is, uh, they call this the bait and switch, right? You bait it, and you say, this is what you're going to get, but then you switch it, and this is actually what you're going to get. And the bait here is Satan speaking to Eve, beginning to tempt her to think and question something about the character of God. He says here, uh, did God really say that you can't eat from the tree of the garden? And uh, any tree in the garden? And Eve says, no, he didn't say that we, couldn't, that we could eat of any tree. There's just one tree, one tree in the midst of the whole garden of Eden that we're not allowed to touch, we're not allowed to eat from. Now, imagine with me for a second how many trees there were in the Garden of Eden, and I don't know the answer to that, but I decided to get online and look, and they're actually, they've done a research, and they estimate that on planet Earth, there's somewhere around three trillion trees, okay? So that's a three with 12 zeros uh, behind it, all right? So, three trillion trees. Guess Amongst three trillion trees, which tree Satan focuses in on? Not the three trillion that were available, could be eaten any time, enjoy it every day if you want to, breakfast, lunch, and supper, whatever you want, you can do that. That's not what he's doing. He focuses in on the one tree that God said they were not to eat from. And so begin to see here what Satan is up to. And by the way, his, uh, his uh, temptations haven't changed over the years. This is exactly the same thing that he does to us every single day. But what Satan is doing here is, he, he, it's not about the tree, you know, and it's not even about the fruit. Like we tend to think about, oh, it was the fruit. If she would have had vegetables instead of fruit, maybe this would all have worked out okay. Listen to her mother about vegetables being good for her. Although she had no mother, so that wouldn't have worked. But it's not about the tree, and it's not about the fruit. This is all about God. And Satan drawing Eve away from a fundamental belief that God is good 
and that God is love. He questions the character of God. Just the smallest suspicion, he says here. Notice also that he hides the punishment. Here's the switch, okay? I'm sorry, the bait in the bait and the switch is to hide the punishment. Like the, like the bass fisherman who hides the uh, hook or uh, some of these deer hunters that I see that put out the lick, right, every day. That's just terrible, isn't it? And then they just shoot them one day when they're licking. That's not right, okay? It's not right. I'm promising you to provide for you, and now I am going to, I'm going to eat you. That's exactly what this is. He hides the punishment. He says, you shall not surely die. First ever false doctrine sermon ever preached is Satan right here. He denies the word of God and seeks to minimize the consequences, negative consequences, of Eve going contrary to what God has commanded, okay? You shall not surely die. Now, we look at this and we think, Eve. You know, you almost read this hoping that this time when you read it, she won't fall for it. How could you be so stupid? God said that, right? You know that that is true. A snake is talking to you. And you'd rather believe the snake than Almighty God that you've seen in all of his glory. It's so irrational, but that's the nature of sin. Sin is always irrational. It never makes sense. It does in the moment, but in hindsight, we look back and we think, what a fool I have, what a fool I was, what a fool I have been. That's the nature of sin. And we see Satan here, he's offering her fruit, but he's getting ready to take away everything. Everything. The fruit, you know, you put it on the scale, okay, you take a choice. Momentary eating of the fruit, the loss of paradise forever. Which would you choose in a rational moment? Everybody knows you would never. I mean, you say, you know what, I'll just go to the next tree down if I need some fruit. This one will cost me so dearly. This is what Satan does. Think about it maybe in a temptation that you're dealing with. Maybe you've got uh, some illicit relationship that you're fantasizing about. Maybe you have some opportunity that is a compromising opportunity uh, in business. Or maybe you have some besetting sin that you have been thinking about maybe acting on that temptation. I guarantee you, you are not seeing clearly all of the fallout of acting upon that temptation. He blinds us to the, to the consequences, and we focus in. It's like all we see is the fruit. And at the root of the question here is the goodness of God. He's questioning whether God has Eve's best interest at heart by saying, don't eat of, the tree of, the, uh, of this tree. Maybe God is hiding something, withholding something good from me. Maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. And to act on that. And if you want to understand sin in in its core, it is a desire to act independent of God. I am throwing off constraint. First John says that sin is lawlessness. I want no constraints. I want to be free to do whatever I want to do. Or to say it this way. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. 
Let it go, let it go. I have a two-year-old daughter, right? So, but is that not the mantra of the human race? Throwing off constraints, I want to live independent of God, I want to be God. I want to be in charge. Verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now remember... Remember chapter one, why were Adam and Eve made and how were they engineered us as well? We were made by God and we were made for God. In other words, this is a relationship by divine design of not independence, but of dependence on God, of connection with God. Our life, our meaning, our worship all flows from that right relationship with God. When that is severed, everything crumbles. And we see now this moment where everything crumbles. Prior to this moment, Adam and Eve, they walked around completely naked and they felt no shame. They were not even aware. They were like animals that are completely unaware that they are not wearing clothing and are not concerned about it. Actually, I'll go back to my two-year-old daughter who would run naked right across the stage and think nothing of it. (laughs) That moral awareness has not connected with her, which is part of my theology of stage of accountability and all of that with young children, but that's not the point of this message. Adam and Eve, totally naked, totally, uh, nakedness is vulnerability. Nakedness means I have nothing to hide. And that's how they were with one another, not even aware that they were naked. And into Eve's heart came a desire for independence. And how did Satan know that this would work so fantastic? It is exactly the same thing that, that Satan fell from. He wanted to be independent of God. He did not want to be under the sovereign lordship of God. He wanted to be God. And he draws Eve into that same ancient temptation And draws her towards the desire to be not just like God, but to be God, to be her own God. And we see then that sin always involves some form of self-worship. Somehow this is about me elevating myself, living for myself. And that desire rises within her and she eats from the tree. And we notice right away, I mean the next clause, we see how this sin now is reshaping and and is twisting and perverting God's good order because the first thing that she does is she gives it to Adam and tells him eat of this as well and what do we see there right all of a sudden there's a change in the order Adam's called to lead Eve Eve's not called to lead Adam but in this moment all of a sudden Eve acting independent of Adam and now leading Adam Adam not leading following Eve and he eats of the tree now what if Adam wouldn't have eaten you ever thought about that what if Eve Ked said hey here's some of that he goes woman I am not touching that stuff and you are in big trouble right what would have happened then and this is totally speculative but I think I think Adam could have been our guest speaker today 
Because Adam was made to live forever on this earth. So Eve could have died. God could have made a new Eve. Adam had a few more ribs after all. So another wife could have been made. And on they went in harmony and happiness. It was Adam's sin that condemned the whole human race. It was not Eve's sin. It was Adam's sin. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. All of a sudden, there's a moral awareness that comes upon them. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Ironically, here, Satan delivers on his promise. He said, if you eat of this tree, you're going to know good and evil in a way that you never have before. You'll know it more like God knows it. And guess what? That came true, didn't it? Only now they know about morality, not from a position of innocence, but from a position of guilt and shame. They realize that they are naked. And we see then that their shame involves their entire personhood. It's not that they just were, their conscience bothered them inside in isolation or that somehow they felt tension with one another, it involved their entire personhood, right down to their bodies. All of a sudden, they felt the need to cover themselves, and we have been covering ourselves as sinners ever since, and we are here today. We feel shame. We're somehow aware as image bearers of a God, and it calls us strangely in the image-bearingness to feel naked and to feel shame and to clothe ourselves, and the whole human race clothes themselves to this day. Now I look at this at times and I think, it doesn't seem like that big a deal, does it? She ate a little fruit, okay? Don't we all sort of feel that way when we go to McDonald's? You know, it's like, shouldn't have had that. But, oh well, right? Why was this such a big deal? And the reason is that this represented rebellion against God by the very people that were made to worship him. D.A. Carson says, we should not think that the serpent's temptation is nothing more than an invitation to break a rule, arbitrary or otherwise. This is what a lot of people think sin is, just breaking a rule. What is at stake here is something deeper, bigger, sadder, uglier, more heinous. It is a revolution. It makes me God and thus de-gods God. And as the old saying goes, we don't break the Ten Commandments, they break us. Who suffers as a result of this? It begins with Adam and Eve. Now, it eventually will involve God himself. But that sin, they are the ones that suffer from that. And so do we, right? Whenever we sin, sin is always irrational. You know, uh, one of the Puritans said the punishment for sin is sin itself. Like we continue in this cycle of sin and degrades our image bearing and shrivels our soul. We are the ones that suffer the consequences. So that, you know, we look at it maybe as an adult, we see a a young person, a teenager, they're in rebellion against their parents. And whatever their parents say is, you know, parents say do this, they want to do this over here. And we look at that and we we realize from an adult perspective, who is suffering as a result of that child's character and habits. It is that child that will suffer from it. Even as he is trying to be independent, 
He is bringing consequences upon himself. And it's the same for the gambling addict who doesn't see what is actually going on. And the man going to the strip club on 8094 doesn't realize who he is actually destroying. He is destroying himself. And all sin is that kind of spiritual suicide. And Adam and Eve, all of us, they think, hey, we get to have something that, that we want. We're going to be happier as a result of this. And on the other side of the sin, it dawns on them in a devastating way who they have destroyed. They have destroyed themselves. And the consequences of this devastate everything else. Look at verse 16. Now, God comes to pronounce judgment upon Satan and Adam and Eve. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. We're talking consequences of the fall. First one, right away, that God highlights, broken human relationships. I personally think there will be a long line of women uh, wanting to talk to Eve in heaven someday. I got a few things I want to tell to that woman, right? Pain in childbirth. How accurately has that been fulfilled? And all the moms said, amen. amen, okay. Having been in the room for two now, I can amen that as well. It's not good in those moments, by the way, to remind the woman, you feel this because Eve, right? <laughs> it's all you women's fault. Don't say that. Okay. But even more painful than those moments of childbirth are the ongoing destruction of harmony in human relationships. God says here, notice, one effect of this fall, Eve, is that your desire shall be for your husband. Now, we look at that and we say, oh, that's so wonderful. She's going to desire her husband. What marriage couldn't use a little bit more of that, right? I mean, that's good, right? And yet, we look into this a little deeper and we realize it's not that he, she is going to have, you know, affectionate desire for her husband, she is actually going to want his place. Just like Eve acted independent of Adam and led Adam. Women now, from this point forward, God says, your heart's desire is going to be to usurp your husband's role in marriage if you're married, and you are going to covet his place. You are going to covet his leadership, and the resentment and the problems that flow from that power struggle within marriages. Think of over the centuries, all of the issues that have come from marriages where husbands don't lead and wives don't follow, and the resentment that goes between those when either of those is broken. In fact, Part of the brokenness is not just the wife wanting to be the husband. Part of the brokenness, he says here, is that your husband shall rule over you. And what that is talking about is rather than Adam called to be the servant leader, called to live in a, in a love in a sacrificial way, which he had always done up to that point in the story, now the husband actually will be inclined to exploit the wife, to demean her, to see her as... Rather than him as the servant for her, her as the servant for him. 
And that will be the temptation and the desire of the husband as a result of the fall. And what's true in marriage is true in all human relationships. They were all corrupted by the fall. Now children, rather than loving and honoring their parents, they are going to feel a kind of resentment for their authority over them. And that relationship is continually going to be a challenge and a struggle, so much so God inserts one of the Ten Commandments just to tell children, you got to honor your father and your mother. This thing is so broken, you, I'm putting a commandment to remind you that this works really great when you honor your father and your mother. And the children here said, see, that's exactly the point. <laughs> that is the result of the fall. I ain't amen in that. That's my least favorite commandment, that fifth one. Children will be like Eve, seeking independence rather than dependence on the authority placed over them. Interpersonal relationships are devastated. The very next human relationship that's described in the story is Cain and Abel. And Cain murders Abel. You'd think it'd take a while for it to get, you know, bad around there. Their ch- one child murders the other. That's how quickly the human heart fell into pride. And that's really the root of all sin is, is that pride, that desire to exalt myself at the expense of others, to resent anybody that's receiving more glory than I am, And when we look in the human story, where do we go to to explain all the kidnapping, all the trafficking, all the divorcing, all the murdering, all the warring, all the gossiping, all the murmuring and the grumbling, and all of the issues that we all live with in human relationships? Where do we go for all of that? We go right there to this moment in the story, and it explains why all of us deal with this. It's the fall. It's the fall. Notice, it doesn't stop with human relationships. Look at verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. A stunning statement by God. Because we could say, oh, the sin was located and the consequences were located down in Adam and Eve's heart. That little spot down here, this is where the sin is. And we see it's like, it's like a nuclear explosion that happens here. And the, the ripple effect extends to every atom in the universe. All of creation is judged, is uh, placed under, at least for now, a kind of judgment. Romans tells us this. Paul writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. There you have it. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole universe is groaning? Yes, that's what the, that's what the Bible says. And does that not align with what we see as we look in the world around us? 
This creation that was made to live in perfect harmony, to meet every need and supply every need for, the human, for human beings, now the whole food chain is dependent on what? Death. The food chain is about death. It is little things being eaten by bigger things and bigger things eating those things and up the food chain you go. All of it depends on death. And then we look in the kind of big scale of the kind of devastation that creation does against itself and us. What am I talking about? Earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, volcanic eruptions, tornadoes. We look at those things and we call them, it's a natural disaster. It is actually a contrary to nature disaster. God didn't make the world to devastate itself. Those are the groanings of this world. So that when a tsunami like happened uh, 10 years ago in Indonesia, when that earthquake hits and the tsunami comes and kills a quarter of a million people, we look at that and we see that creation is groaning. It's another indication of what happened way back in the fall. It is a consequence, an ongoing judgment upon us, upon creation for sin. And it destroys us. So relationships are broken, creation is broken, and mankind is broken. Look at verse 16. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's perhaps no sentence in Scripture with far more far-reaching consequence than this sentence that we have here before us. Essentially, what God is saying is this. I made you out of the dust of the earth. I made you to live forever. But you have rebelled against me. And my judgment upon you is you will die. You will die. I imagine that moment, Adam and Eve maybe looking at each other going, what does that mean? I don't, there was no death. They'd never seen anything die. They don't, I wonder if they even knew what that word meant. Maybe that's why God says you're made of dust and to dust you're going to return is because they like, can't even conceive of something that is living, not living anymore. We're so used to it, right? You drove by three roadkills on the way to get to church today. We just see it and we're like, oh yeah, something died. But that was not a part of the creation as God made it. Death. What kind of death? What kind of death are we talking about here? Well, the first death was not physical death. The first death was the death of moral purity. They were absolutely morally perfect. There was no taint of sin upon them. Now, they, when they fell, they fell all the way. And the Bible says that when Adam sinned, he sinned as our representative. He was the first man. And so in a sense, when he sinned, we all sinned with him. We all sinned with him. And we inherit from him his moral guilt. So that when we are born, we are born sinners, right? David says that in Psalm 51, I was conceived in sin. I, we, we are, sin is just a part of who we are from the very beginning. My little daughter Madeline is as cute as a button, but she is a sinner. 
She was born inheriting the guilt from Adam and Eve and from all the rest of us. It was also the death of innocence. This is the doctrine of original sin, sometimes called that. That not only do we inherit guilt, but we inherit sin. We inherit a sin nature. We are inclined to sin from the day that we are born. We are not born innocent. We're not born little pre-fall Adam and Eves. We are born post-fall Adam and Eves. Our inclination is fundamentally away from God. We want to throw off constraints. We want it to be all about me from the moment we are born. That is what we are like, and we remain that way largely the rest of our lives. How? Why? Because it was passed down to us. We have inherited a nature towards sin. It was the death of innocence. It was also the death of holy desire. This is known as inherited corruption or sometimes the depravity of man. Prior to the fall, Adam's every desire was for righteousness. He always wanted to obey the will of God. He delighted in that. But after after the fall, these desires that we have are all tainted by sin. Jeremiah the prophet says that our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? We don't even begin to realize the wickedness that lies within our own heart. In fact, Robert Murray McShane said that. The sins of the, the seeds of the sins of all men lie within my own heart. So we look at the person in the prison who's done something terrible or the last person who did something that they're in the paper for, you know, stealing or whatever it is, and it would be easy for us to look at them and go, oh, those bad people, I can't believe that they did that. The Bible says that we ought to look in our hearts and realize that there but by the grace of God go I, that I could be that person. I have the capacity. My nature is the same as their nature. I am depraved in the sense that I am fundamentally oriented towards sin and not God and not holiness and not righteousness. So complete is this that the Apostle Paul writes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's another easy one to prove. Anybody here not sin ever your whole life? Okay. I guess we've proved it. We are all the same. We should all look up and down the rows, and none of us should say, well, I'm a little better than that person. No, we're not. The same nature lies within every single one of us. And that is not to say that we all do sin all the time because we still retain image bearingness, and so we love uh, people, and we help old ladies across the street and give money to charitable things at Christmas, etc., etc. It's not that everything that we do is as sinful as it can be, but what it does mean is everything that I do is tainted by sin. There is a little fingerprint of me somehow in that. We are foundationally corrupted. The exact opposite of how God made us to be. Two more deaths. And here's the the one that we all know about. It means physical death. It means that all of us die. And again, see how this aligns with the story of history? (laughs) Everybody's going to die is what God said. We look in history and guess what? Everybody's died. Everybody dies all the time. I thought about just getting today's paper this morning and say, okay, let's just read through the obituary and see if, if what God said was true. 
and down through the list. But the fact that every daily newspaper has an obituary proves the point, doesn't it? That all of us die. That physical death is a separation of my soul, which is made to live forever, and a body that was originally intended to live forever, but because of sin, doesn't. And death is when my soul is separated from my body. My soul goes to live forever, either in heaven or hell. My body dies and is buried in the ground. And that separation, that unnaturalness, this contrary to creative design, is why Jesus is at the edge of Lazarus' tomb, knowing he's going to resurrect him from the dead in a moment, and yet is filled with emotion, and he weeps. Why was Jesus weeping? If I knew I was about to go to a grave and raise somebody from the dead, it'd be the happiest day of my life. Why cry? He cried because of death. He cried because his friend experienced something that was the consequence of what happened years and years before in the Garden of Eden. Death is a distortion. It is our great enemy. But it's not the greatest enemy. The Bible makes it clear that our physical death is not actually the death that we should fear the most. The worst death is eternal death, spiritual death. Here's Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And you see the distinction that Jesus is making there. Because most of us think way more about dying physically than we worry about the eternal death. And we are, he, Jesus says, you got it backwards. Okay, you're all going to die. Just accept it. The one you need to be thinking about is where eternity lies. Where your soul will be for eternity. Fear the one who can cast your soul into hell. A kind of eternal spiritual death. And we see then that the fall is not just that we return to the dust. The consequences are forever. Forever. Every single person that you meet is going to live forever somewhere. So we look in the world and we see obituaries, San Bernardino shootings, cancer wards, cemeteries, chronic pain, wrinkles on our faces, all of it telling us something. Something has happened. Philip Yancey writes that we're like Robinson Crusoe waking up on the beach and we look and we see a piece of a sail and there's a plank from, you know, a wood plank and there's some debris floating on the edge of the surf and we look around, we pick up each one of these things and independently they don't tell us anything, but you look at all of the wreckage and it tells you what? Something is broken. Something that once was together has now been devastated. And that's the world that we live in. That is the explanation for all of the pain, all of the discord, everything that isn't working like it's supposed to. This is the explanation for obituaries and San Bernardino shootings, cancer wards, cemeteries, all of this. It all tells us something. It tells us the world needs a savior. The world needs a savior. I saw the headline, I think it was this morning, as a result of Paris talks and the accord that was signed yesterday. 
This is our only hope. Was the head, this is the headline. This is our only hope for saving the world. I'm glad to tell you today there is a hope that goes much better and beyond any piece of paper signed by men on earth. And that hope is hinted at here. The very first time Christmas is hinted at, verse 15 of Genesis 3, he says to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We ask the question, who's the he? Who's the he that's going to come to the snake and do what you got to do with the snake? You got to cut it off at the head. Who's that talking about? Well, next week we're going to look at redemption, but I'd be remiss if I didn't simply say this. There is one who's coming, who is going to come and to reverse all of these effects and consequences. And he is going to do that by not sinning and being born innocent. He is going to do that by dying, but not because of sins that he has made. Therefore, that judgment that God made upon man didn't qualify to him, or didn't, it didn't uh, uh, apply to him. Therefore, he is qualified to die for other people's sin. And that person is the Son of God who came to earth and gave, given the name Jesus. And that truth is what we celebrate here at Bethel Church. That truth is what the core of our, of our hearts and our belief. That is what allows us to approach death and to go through cancer and all these different things with a confidence that, yes, I am going to die, but I am not going to face the big death that i got to worry about, which is the eternal one. Why? Because my sins are forgiven. And as John 3.16 reminds us, the consequence of that is that I am given the one thing I need more than anything else, which is eternal life. I will live forever. And oh, by the way, God resurrects our bodies as well and new heaven, a new earth, and restoration, everything reversed that was done, God wins in the end. God wins in the end. But that's a future chapter. I don't want to ruin the story, but I will tell you that you don't have to wait till next week to believe it and to put your trust in the one that came to reverse everything that the fall brought. Amen.